0: Again, I want to thank you for coming. My name is Robert Browning. I'm one of the pastors here. Whether this is your first time here or perhaps you attended the very first gathering of people that in God's providence and graciousness became Independent Presbyterian Church now for four generations, or anyone and everyone in between, I'm so thankful that you're here this morning and you are welcome. We hope that if you have any questions about what we believe as a church, you can feel free to Find me at the back door following the service, or Parker Tennant will be here at the door at my left. Feel free to pull us aside. We love to answer any questions that you may have about who we are as a church, what it is that we believe, or how it is that you can have a relationship with our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. We are now, in week four of our summer series, as we consider together what the Apostle Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit. It's summer, we know that people are traveling more, so there's a very real chance that that you haven't been here for everything that's brought us to this point. So just very quickly, remember that the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Galatia, and in this letter he's addressing two problems, if you will. Jeremy talked about this as we began our study a few weeks ago. Two uh, underlying problems that are highlighted by these two questions. First... How am I made right with God? And secondly, in light of the first question, How then am I to live? Or what difference should it make in my life? As to the first question, the Apostle Paul is correcting those in the church who are trying to say, The way you were made right with God, yes, of course, is is by trusting in Jesus and what he did on your behalf by paying the punishment for your sin on the cross, which is what set you at odds with God in the first place. But, they were saying, there's more you've got to do as a Christian. There are certain religious things and practices that you need to keep up. So it's it's Jesus plus these things uh, that save you. And the Apostle Paul says, that is not true. That's a lie. That's not the gospel. And if you're visiting with us today, I want you to know we as a church agree with the Apostle Paul. That that is not the gospel. But secondly, if you are trusting in Christ, then Jesus says he will send his Holy Spirit to work in your life to change you. That he will begin to mold you and make you into his image, a person who reflects the characteristics of Christ himself. And that that takes time, that God works at his pace and in his time. But make no mistake about it, if you are a Christian, he is working in your life. So how do you know? How do you know that the Spirit of God is working in your life? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked. Paul says it's here, what he calls the fruit of the Spirit. A couple of things. First, notice, it's not fruits of the Spirit. In other words, it's not like spiritual gifts, right? Where some of us may have the gift of hospitality and others of us have the gift of teaching. No, no. This is the fruit or the evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, these will be true in you if you are in Christ. That the Holy Spirit... Is working these things in you. So you can't say, you know what, I, I think I'm a really joyful person, but I don't really need so much the you know gentleness part. It's not what Paul's saying. I don't know. If the Spirit of God is working in you, these things he will begin to work in you. And again, it takes time, but they will begin to manifest themselves. He sets the evidence over and against what he calls the desires of the flesh. So listen for that distinction as we read our text. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to begin reading in verse 16 and read through 25. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. There's some in the chair racks or in the pew racks in front of you. And you'll find that on page 975 if you're using one of those pew Bibles. So this is God's perfect, poignant, Impersonal personal word for his people this morning. Let's give our attention to the reading of it. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, for some of us, we almost didn't make it here this morning. We almost didn't get out of bed. We almost didn't want to see people. We almost drove right by and almost just went out for another cup of coffee. We almost stepped out to go to the bathroom and almost kept right on walking, but we didn't. Because we don't need almost today. We need the very real and very powerful life-giving experience of meeting with you. So we boldly pray that we wouldn't almost listen. And that you wouldn't almost change us in our lives. But that you would speak boldly and clearly through your spirit. And that our very hearts and beings would be changed today through your son. Who did not almost come for us. But did in fact come for this very purpose to draw us close to you. Fill us with gratitude and with exuberant joy for who you are and what you have done in our lives through Jesus Christ. May we humbly yet boldly ask that you would speak, O oh Lord, for your servants listen. In Christ's name. Amen. You ever been given a task and thought, "Well, that's not needed." I mean, that seems trivial unimportant, rather mundane. i got to admit, when our senior pastor, Sean Lucas, laid out the sermon series, and I looked ahead and saw that he wanted me to speak on patience, I couldn't help but think, seriously? After this past year, do you think we really need to cover that? I mean, I think we've all been the epitome of patience. I mean, I think we've mastered this one, right? Who's with me? Let's close in prayer. No. Of course that was not my reaction, because we didn't nail it last year. And I can't speak for you, or at least for all of you. I can speak for some of you, but not all of you. But I'm not a master of patience. And I don't think you are either. It doesn't come naturally for me. It doesn't come naturally for any of us. And that's Paul's point. Patience is the evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Some of you may have glanced at the sermon title for today and noticed that I've called it Barbecue Theology, Patience of a Master. If you don't know, several years ago, because of a series of events, I became fascinated with, and I love barbecue. I love all of it. I love cooking it. I love eating it. I love judging it at competitions. I just love it. And what you may or may not be interested in knowing is how I tend to write sermons, for me, it happens over time. I'm assigned a text, I begin to study it, and then I kind of marinate in it for weeks. I, I've written many a sermon on a lawnmower, in my car, in the shower, writing my three points in the you know, fogged window of our shower. For this particular sermon, I started putting together my thoughts as I was walking around Memphis in May world barbecue cooking competition this year and it came to me because as I was listening to these teams as I was listening to these pitmasters talk about barbecue every one of them said you know what it requires patience patience you see the art of barbecue is taking a tough piece of meat And over time, be it ribs, be it a pork shoulder, be it a pork butt, be it a whole hog, over time, cooking it low and slow, making it some of the most tender meat you could ever eat. And it's funny is I started thinking about patience and thinking about how it's spoken of in the Bible. You know what I found out? I think the way or the method by which the Holy Spirit takes people like us who can be rough and tough and make us tender through so the same method low slow let's talk about it first what do i mean by low well some of you may have read Dane Ortlund's book Gentle and lowly where he unpacks the way Jesus describes his heart in fact if you've got your bible flip over to Matthew chapter 11 Listen to verse 28 and 29. It's the point in the Gospels where where Jesus is describing himself, what it is that motivates him as the Son of God. And you, you get to verse 28, and it says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Did you hear it? When Jesus describes himself, what lies at the heart of who he is as the Son of God, the way in which he chooses to describe himself is lowly. The Greek word used here by Jesus is tepainos. It's often translated humble, lowly, downcast. It's used to describe a characteristic in someone. And we see that very virtue in Jesus. One of the many themes that runs throughout the, the meta narrative of Scripture is that of humiliation, which is then followed by exaltation. We see it in the lives of various people in the Bible, right? We just saw it in our Genesis series play out in the life of Joseph, being left in a pit, sold into slavery, put into jail. Humiliation. But then exalted in the house of Pharaoh, made the highest official in the land, save that of Pharaoh himself. Exaltation. We see it in the Psalms as Parker laid out for us last Sunday evening in Psalm 113. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high? But then who looks far down on the heavens and earth? That's humiliation. God condescending to to care for us, his creation. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts up the needy from the ash heap. Exaltation. But it's exemplified in Christ himself. One of the most beloved chapters in Paul's letter to the Philippians is chapter 2, where he says, Our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being the very nature of God, did not consider his equality with God something to be held on to at all costs, but humbled himself, even to the point of becoming a servant, to the point of death, humiliation. Therefore God exalted him and gave him the name that's above all names, exaltation, that very quality, that very character of Jesus is that of humility, this virtue or characteristic of being lowly. But it's not just a matter of character. We see it play out as well in the life of Jesus by the company he keeps. We'll talk about this more in depth in a few weeks when we look at faithfulness. But it's worth a passing mention here as well. If you go back to that text in Matthew chapter 11, and you just look up a little bit, you have Jesus in verse 18, quoting his detractors and how they describe him. It says this, for John, meaning John the Baptist, came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon, the son of man, meaning Jesus, came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. What's interesting is that Jesus doesn't deny the charge. He doesn't say that it's a lie. He doesn't say, oh, they're exaggerating. It's not fake news from a religious rag report or a false narrative of the Phaeseric press. Those opposing Jesus are actually trying to weaponize the truth and use it against him. But Jesus embraces it, he says it's true. I am a friend to tax collectors and sinners. That's the company I keep. And the company that Jesus kept, well, guess what? They're very comfortable around Jesus. He was not an unwanted guest among them. And they were not unwanted guests around him. The lowly described the company with whom Jesus associated. Twelve lowly men of no rank or importance to be his disciples. Fishermen. Tax collectors. A political zealot, a thief, a betrayer. He engaged in long and meaningful conversations with the poor and promiscuous, with the prostitutes and the plagued. He ate at their tables, he drank from their water cups, he touched them, he healed them, he spent time with them, and he showed them love. You see, the name Emmanuel, which means God with us, was not just used at holidays for this group. It meant so much more. That God would choose to come near to them it was very real to this company on the island of misfit toys. Ortland, in his book says that Jesus is a friend to sinners is only contemptible to those who feel themselves not to be in that category. Humiliation is a theme, this, this going low. It's not the only theme that runs through the pages of God's word. Another one is this idea inasmuch, inasmuch as we have been recipients of mercy, so we too, as his people, should extend mercy. Inasmuch as we forgive our neighbor, we pray in the Lord's Prayer as we just did this morning that God would forgive us in as much as we forgive our neighbors. And inasmuch as Jesus was patient with us, becoming low. So we too should be low in character and in company. That's what Paul's saying. He says if Christ is in you, it's going to be evidenced in your life. That same characteristic of lowliness which exemplified the patience of Jesus should be present in his people. Presbyterian theologian Charles Hodge says grace humbles a man without degrading him. And it exalts a man without inflating him. Grace is the tool that the Spirit of God uses to make a follower of Jesus lowly. There are no haughty Christians, according to Paul. Only those who are willing to go low and bear with and be patient with others. It's a mark of their character, just as it was with Jesus. And it will be seen in the company we keep just as it was with Christ. One of my favorite poems is by a woman named Ruth Calkin, who pens these words. I wonder, you know, Lord, how I serve you with great emotional fervor in the limelight. You know how eagerly I speak for you in public. You know how I shine when I promote a fellowship Bible group. You know my genuine enthusiasm at a Bible study. But how would I react, I wonder, if you pointed to a basin of water and asked me to wash the callous feet of a bent and wrinkled old woman day after day, month after month, in a room where nobody saw and nobody knew. I first heard that poem on an RUF summer conference when I was in college. That last question How would I react, I wonder, if you pointed to a basin of water in a room where nobody saw and nobody knew? That stayed with me. You know what it means, right? It means no more humble brags. You know what that is? It means if Jesus asked you to do this, you couldn't post about it. You couldn't tweet about it. You can't insta-brag about it. Just here with my basin of water, my bent and wrinkled friend. Click. Hashtag blessed to serve. <laughs> Spirit of God at work and changing you to be like Christ means a lowly life. In character and company. It means you're going to be entering many rooms where nobody sees Nobody knows. It's the Spirit of God beginning to work. Patience in you. Don't believe me? Ask the people around you who are caring for their aging parents. Or spouses declining in health. Or relatives with special needs. The patience of loving those with memory loss. The patience of loving those who can no longer do what needs to be done to care for themselves or those who will never reach a point where they can care for themselves. When God's Spirit works patience into you, it requires that God's people go low. And when God's Spirit works patience into you, it also means to go slow. Again, we see this in the character of God himself, and it's exemplified in Christ. It's often accompanied or set apart by the word steadfast in Scripture. It was there in our call to worship. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The psalmist is reflecting back. He's repeating to himself what God had already revealed about his character, When Moses asked this question, God, let me see your glory. Parker made reference to it. We used it for our assurance of pardon today. But don't forget the context. That request from Moses was not a request for a miracle or a grand performance of some kind. No, it was a request for God to further expand on who he is. To give Moses a a clearer picture of God's character. It's like us asking the question of someone we're trying to get to know better. Hey, tell me about yourself. And God, who could have done anything in that moment, literally could have made the mountains play leapfrog. Could have had the volcanoes shoot shoot off the most amazing precursor to fireworks ever seen. He could have had the wind put on an orchestral opus. But he doesn't. In showing Moses his glory, he chooses to describe himself. And in all the ways that he could have described himself, In all the ways that he could have responded, this is what he says The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love for thousands, forgiving the iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means leave or clear the guilty. In other words, God is asked by Moses tell me more about your character, what makes you God? And his answer is that he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. In other words, God chooses, in describing what makes him glorious, God chooses to talk about his patience. You see it in Jesus as well. John chapter 12, verse 47. Jesus says, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge them. For I did not come to judge, but to save the world. This exemplifies what God revealed as his character, that he is patient, that he is slow to anger, that he's abounding in love, but that he will not clear the guilty. Jesus, make no mistake, it's said in scripture, Jesus will return in judgment. But he's exercising restraint and patience so that we might be the recipients of his patience and forgiveness. I believe it's that patience of Jesus that drove him to tears as he's going into Jerusalem the last time. We're told that as he draws near to the city, he weeps over it. That's not a single tear, just kind of falling down. In the original Greek, it it might as well say ugly cry. It's a mournful wail. Why is Jesus crying? Because they've rejected him and he knows it. And he knows that they're going to turn on him and that he's going to be crucified. Now, if I was prophesying about temporal judgment on a group of people who had rejected me and rejected me to the point of causing my death, I would not be weeping. My natural thought would be something along the lines of Oh, you want to feel rejection? I'll show you rejection. But here's the good news. I'm not Jesus. And Jesus doesn't respond like that. The weeping of Jesus is an external outpouring of his patience. He's slow to anger, even amidst rejection. Think about the patience that he has with those around him. Remember in Mark chapter 10, when two brothers, James and John, come to him and say, Hey, Jesus, whatever we ask of you, we want you to do it. And Jesus asked a clarifying question. <laughs> what do you mean? And they said, we want it for us, Want one of us to sit on your right, one of us to sit on left in glory. It says the other ten were indignant about this. Why? Why were they indignant? Do you remember what happened just one chapter before? It says they all, each and every one of them, have been arguing about which one was the greatest. It just seems like James and John won't let it go. The other ten are not shocked, appalled, deeply saddened at the audacity of the question. They're mad they were beat to it. It's like they were playing a game, but somebody called time out, but James and John never quit playing. That's why the others are mad. But what was Jesus' response? Jesus did not get angry at them. He did not say, didn't we just have this conversation? And when I said be like children, this is not what I had in mind. This gimme, gimme, lemme, lemme, this constant can I get? No, Jesus is slow to anger with his disciples, with the company that he keeps. He's patient with these guys who just don't get it. And again, that's good news for somebody like me who just doesn't get it. And it's good news for you as well. When God's Spirit works patience into you, it requires a going low. When God's Spirit works patience in you, it requires going slow. James, the brother of Jesus, writes in this letter that bears his name. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen and what? Do you remember what comes next? Be slow to speak and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. He has no idea the impact that he made on me. But there was a pastor named Vernon Eaton, and he was a guest preacher one Sunday morning in our small church in Jackson, Tennessee. He was preaching about how our words can be weaponized and our tongues are like swords. And I remember that there were three questions that he said Christians should ask themselves before they allow themselves to speak. He said they're like speed bumps for our tongues. The first question we should ask ourselves before we speak is this, is it true? If it's not true, don't say it. Think about if Christians would just follow that one piece of advice, what a difference it would make in our church and in our culture. If we simply wouldn't give ourselves license to break the ninth commandment, think about how much better the church would be. If you want to be convicted about how often we break this one commandment, go read the Westminster Larger Catechism, questions 144 and 145, where it talks about what's required to keep the commandment and then what's forbidden by it. It says things like this. If you're going to keep the commandment, you need to study and practice whatever things are true, honest, lovely, and of good report. And it forbids... All prejudicing the truth, the good name of our neighbor, speaking truth unseasonably or maliciously to a wrong end or perverting it to a wrong meaning. Take your conversations, take your emails over the last year and run it through that grid and see if you've made a regular practice of breaking the ninth commandment regarding truth-telling. Secondly, Pastor Eaton said, even if it's true, ask yourself the next question. Is it needed? Just because something may be true doesn't mean it's needed. Doesn't mean it has to be said. There was one more speed bump, one more question. He said, third, can you say it in a kind way? It may be true. You may deem that it's needed. But if you cannot say it kindly, then he said, You don't need to speak at all. Slow to speak, slow to anger. That's an example of patience in regard to our speech. I heard him say it. I remember him saying it. I have not always lived by it. I was a young seminary student serving as an interim pastor a small church in Charlotte when I say small I mean the average attendance on a good Sunday was maybe 60 people great number of elderly people with younger family members interspersed one of whom was a single mom trying to raise a sometimes rebellious high school daughter the daughter I'll call her Helen this morning Helen got up to sing an offertory one Sunday morning with an outfit that I deemed far too inappropriate my judgment, in my wisdom, in my self-righteousness. I thought it was an offense to God and probably offensive to any member who was not a member of her family and perhaps even some of those. And I was angry. I was angry for the service. I was angry the whole afternoon. I was angry that night when I was trying to go to sleep. I was angry when I woke up in the morning. And so I called the mom. And I let her know that her daughter would not be allowed to sing again and worship wearing an outfit like that. And the mom, through tears, apologized, said she was sorry that it offended me, but she really didn't think it was that bad, and this was my response. I can count the change in her back pocket. Was it true? No. Was it needed? No. Even if it was an inappropriate dress, that kind of sarcasm and snark has no place in pastoral ministry, especially to one who's weeping on the phone. Was it kind? Don't think I even have to answer that question, do I? Here are two of the most vulnerable people in our congregation to which God and the church had entrusted to my care, a single mom whose life was stretched to the margins, and a daughter who was on the one hand rebellious but on the other hand willing to come to church to participate, to struggle with what it means to be a Christian, even to the point of being willing to offer praise to God even with all that she was going through. And here I was, wanting more to win an argument and score a few points with an acidic retort than to exhibit the patience required and a Christian, much less the pastoral ministry. I wasn't slow to anger. I wasn't slow to speak. And I wasn't representing well the Savior I knew and the Christ I was called to serve. And I severely wounded those two women that day. Years later, the mom reached out to me by way of Facebook just to say hi. She saw my post wishing her sister, who happened to be a missionary, a happy birthday. And I took the occasion to apologize. She did not remember that it ever happened. I had never forgotten it. And I believe both of those things to be a grace of God. The Spirit of God was much more at work in her than in me in that instance. And she showed me great patience. And for that, I am eternally grateful see, when God's spirit works patience into you, it requires going low. When God's spirit works patience into you, it requires going slow. True pitmasters will tell you that barbecue is about taking a tough piece of meat and making it tender. And the hardcore old school uh, pitmasters will tell you to get the most tender result, it requires the low and slow method. It requires patience. And I think Paul says the same is true. If we are in Christ, then he will be at work in us as the master through his spirit. And these things will be evident in us. Patience is worked in and through us low and slow. In character, and it's evident in how we treat those with whose company we keep. It is true in Christ. And it is true in his people. What do you get? When one is loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, and self-controlled. You get tenderness. You get Jesus. And isn't that what we need? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful. That you were at work. Father, as my friend and Pastor Parker has already said, you're at work in the very fact that you brought each individual here today because you have something you wanted us to hear, and it was this that you are patient with us, that you are slow to anger and abounding in love, that you are quick to forgive. And to draw a people to yourself through your steadfast love and faithfulness. But you did not leave the guilt of our sin unpunished. You sent your Son who became low and exhibited unbelievable patience with us. You changed our hearts through the work of your Holy Spirit to even allow us to hear that you love us. And you draw us to yourself. And as Good as that news is, that's not the gospel. You don't leave us there. You tell us that you will mold us and make us into the very thing you have already declared us to be, holy and righteous in Christ. So you begin to work his characteristics in our life. Love. Joy. Peace. And this one patience and even then we want you to hurry up but you work at your time at your pace for your good pleasure so father thank you for being patient with us and thank you for working patience in us father I pray that through this fruit of the spirit people will be drawn to you We pray these things for your glory and yours alone in Christ's name.